0: Well, we are uh, uh, turning to God's Word now, and uh, this morning we are continuing our, our study through uh, the book of Revelation. We're in Revelation chapter 5, and I'll say that kind of like last week, uh, we're gonna, I'm going to read the scripture text. We'll have a, a little longer introduction uh, as we set up this passage, and then I'll just have uh, two uh, main, main points for us as we uh, look at Revelation 5 and think about uh, Jesus' ascension into heaven as uh, the true king of heaven and earth. So uh, you can follow along right there in your bulletin, Revelation 5, the first 10 verses. This is the word of the Lord. Then I saw in the right hand of, of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would send uh, your uh, Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that um, led the Apostle John uh, to see these uh, visions of heaven and, uh, and to write down what he saw. May, uh, may your Spirit come and may he be our teacher as well. Would, would you lift up our hearts into heaven as well, that we might understand these truths and that we would devote ourselves to you, we would love you and worship you, and that we would love above all the lamb who was slain, who is seated on the throne, and who can open the scroll. He alone is worthy. So we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are studying together uh, the book of Revelation, and if you've ever read Revelation, you probably thought the book of Revelation is about the end of the world. Uh, for example, in the next chapter, Revelation chapter 6, we're going to we'll look at it in a couple weeks, it says this, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And it goes on like that, and you say the stars in the sky are falling out of the sky. I mean, how could that not be about basically the end of the universe? Well, it turns out that that passage from Revelation 6 is almost exactly what Jesus says in, uh, in the Gospels when he talks about his ascension into heaven. In uh, Matthew 24, Jesus says this. This is almost the exact same thing. The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven. It's almost the exact same thing you read in Revelation 6, except Jesus says, just five verses later, he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So apparently, the stars falling out of the heavens already happened. It happened in that first generation, in Jesus' generation, in the first century of the early Christians. How can that be? Well, uh, the stars falling in heaven means that heaven is changing. There are changes happening in heaven. And if you were here last week, uh, you know that we talked about how uh, before Jesus entered heaven, a human being had never been in heaven. Angels ruled over humans from heaven, but now the Son of God became a man. He ascended to the throne And uh, this is the stars falling. This is the angels bowing down. This is heaven changing because now there is a human being seated on the throne. And actually, this kind of language about the stars changing is is not only the Bible that talks that way. I'll give you an example of this. if you've seen the movie The Greatest Showman, which tells the story about P.T. Barnum starting his famous circus, one of the main storylines in The Greatest Showman is about the rich uh, white guy who's played by uh, Zac Efron and who falls in love with the, the black circus performer, uh, Zendaya, I think her name is, uh, and uh, they fall in love, and because of the you know, social order of their day, they're not allowed to you know, become a couple. And so what's the song that they sing to one another? Why don't we rewrite the stars? Say you were made to be mine. Nothing could keep us apart. You'll be the one I was meant to find. Their vision of the social order of their world changing is the stars being rewritten. And why do they call the stars being rewritten? It's because the stars are fixed in heaven. They seem unchangeable. This is the way things have always been. And so when the stars fall, it means there's a new order happening. And uh, that is what Revelation is about. It's about the rewriting of the stars. Revelation is not about the end of the universe. It's about the end of an age. The old age before the Messiah is now giving way to the age where Christ is enthroned as king. And I'll I'll give you another example. This is a little more nerdy example of, of what this is like. But if you've ever read the Lord of the Rings trilogy, you know it's about the final days of the the third age of Middle-earth, when the elves ruled in Middle-earth for like over 3,000 years. And the elves came into power because they defeated the Dark Lord Sauron. But over the third age of Middle-earth, the shadow was growing again. And at the end of the third age of Middle-earth, the human Aragorn led the human armies into battle to defeat Sauron. And what happens at the end of the trilogy It's the end of the age of the elves. The elves leave Middle-earth, and they go over the sea to Valinor. and, And Aragorn, the human king, is enthroned in Gondor, and the fourth age begins, which is the age of men. That is what's happening in this passage. The passage we looked at last week ends with the angels laying down their crowns. The old world was the age of the angels, and it's come to an, a- an end. And after the Son of God became a human, defeated sin, death, and the devil on the cross, he inaugurated the new age of heaven and earth. And uh, you see what uh, the angels mentioned in this passage before the Lamb of God. What are they doing in this passage that we just read? Here's this human that's finally coming to heaven. Look at what it's, uh, it says there uh, uh, in verse uh, 6. And between the throne and the the four living creatures and among the elders, we talked about last week, those are all angels, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, these are angelic cherubim, and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. The angels are bowing down before a human king, the Lamb of God, who is Jesus. And you look at, in this passage, who's now reigning with Jesus? Who are the people who reign with Jesus? Well, it goes on in verse 9, and they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for, uh, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and, and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth is the age of men, and the king of the men is the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God. And so every week, you know, when we come here as a church, and after the sermon, we always say the Apostles' Creed together, and we say those, those words where we say, I believe that he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God of uh, the Father Almighty, God the Father Almighty. And he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. Every time we say that, what we're basically saying is we believe the new age of heaven and earth has begun. The true king is seated on the throne, and to him we give our allegiance. And so that's our topic today. Uh, And the topic of this passage is the ascension, Jesus ascending to the throne. And as we look at the details of these verses, there's just two things I want to point out about Jesus' rule. What it means for him to be king. These are two simple truths. That Jesus rules with a book, and Jesus alone can open the book. Jesus rules with a book, and Jesus alone can open the book. And these are kind of the defining qualities that we learn about the king in this passage. They're really profound for human history and for our lives as disciples of Jesus. So, two insights about Jesus' ascension uh, uh, this morning. And the first is this, that Jesus rules... With a book. And you'll notice that you know, one of the central images in Revelation's description of the enthronement of the Lamb of God is there's a scroll or a book that's present there. You see that in verse 1 where it says, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And then down in verse 5 it says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll. And it's seven seals. The scene describes Jesus taking the throne in heaven. And the main thing we learn about him is that he rules with a book or with a scroll in his hand. And I want to say a couple things uh, about this scroll. Okay, The first thing is that that book, the book, is the Bible. <laughs> the scroll, the book, is the Bible. And uh, Jesus rules with God's word. God's word is how he rules in his kingdom. And, you know, throughout the Bible, whenever there's godly kings, there's kings throughout the Old Testament. They, the good kings always have God's word near. Like Josiah, for example, was one of the great kings in Israel. And the turning point of his whole administration was he found the book of the law. And he read it, and he realized, we're not doing this. And he tears his robes, and then he totally transforms his whole society because he read God's word. And actually, if you go back even further, Joshua, when he led God's people into the promised land. And what, is, what does the Lord say to Joshua as he's leading him into the promised land? He says, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. And that goes back even further to the book of Deuteronomy, where Deuteronomy says, one day Israel's going to have a king. And make sure your king has written a, a version of God's word and has it read to him every single day. And that uh, aligns uh, with how Jesus is referred to here as the line of the tribe of Judah and, and the Root of David. He is the promised Davidic king that's been being talked about all the way back from Deuteronomy. And of course it makes sense then that he has the scroll, he has the book of the covenant right there with him. And actually, uh, you know, we should say that this has really shaped a Christian understanding of earthly politics as well, that uh, we believe political leaders should rule with a written document. You know, we have that in our country. We have a constitution. It's a written document that, that, uh, the, uh, that rulers must live under. In the Old Testament, the, the kings were not the highest authority. There was a written document that was the highest authority. And, uh, and it's amazing that that's true of Jesus himself. You know, Jesus comes uh, in the Sermon on the Mount talking about his kingdom. And he says, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. And he says over and over again, everything he was doing when he was going to the cross, he did it as it was written of him. It was like God's word was his script for what he was going to do. It's incredible to think that even God himself, the creator of heaven and earth, Binds himself to his word, his promises. He says, I'm going to do what I said. He himself even lives under his own word. It's an incredible truth. Jesus rules with a book. And what is this scroll? Well, uh, you know, there's been different guesses of that throughout history. Uh, you know, one, one thought is that in the Roman world... Um, seven seals would have been used to seal a document that would have that was for an inheritance. And so, you know, a seven-sealed uh scroll would have been a, a book of promises, a book of uh the inheritance that children are going to inherit. And of course, Revelation tells us about the inheritance of God's children in the new heavens and the new earth. And uh but a second guess is uh is that it's the Old Testament, right? Uh uh uh, Jesus is the one who can fulfill the Old Testament Scriptures. He's the only one who can kind of unlock the Scriptures. You know, after Jesus' resurrection, he said to two of his disciples uh, on the road to Emmaus, He says, it says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. And uh, actually, in the next chapters, we'll read about this scroll. You know, the seals are going to be unlocked in the book of Revelation over the next few chapters. And what happens with each seal are these curses that kind of go out on the earth, And which makes sense. If you go back and you read the Old Testament, what's the Old Testament? The whole thing is about God giving this law to his people. And he says, if you follow my law, you're going to prosper. But if you turn away from my law and you worship other gods, there are these curses that are going to come upon you. All the prophets of the Old Testament are about those curses. And so this is a continuation. It's the unlocking of the Old, Old Testament uh, covenant, the book of the covenant. Very similar to, to the end of Deuteronomy. And so all this gives some explanation about the scroll. But it turns out there's actually one place in the Bible where a sealed book is mentioned. And it's in the end of the book of Daniel. Daniel 12 says this, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. So the sealed scroll is, could be really the prophecies of Daniel. Daniel. You know the prophets, and if you read about Daniel, Daniel tells about the history of the nations that will happen, really from uh, the, the uh, Babylonian exile in the sixth century BC up until the coming of, of the time of Christ. And you know it's about the Babylonians and the Greeks and the Medes and the and the and the Romans and all these empires that are going to gonna rule. So it's it's kind of telling about God's purposes in history. And what this means is that the apostles, when they say now the scroll is being opened, the scroll is opened at the end of time. And so that's how the apostles talked in the first century. We are living in the last days. We are living at the end of an age, and a new age is beginning. And so the word of God recorded in the scroll reveals all of God's promises, his commandments, and all of his purposes in history. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, is the only one who can unlock all of these mysteries, and they are ultimately fulfilled in him. Okay, so that's what we have happening here so so the first thing is that the book in revelation the scroll it's likely the bible itself it's god's word okay that's what kings kings when they're on the throne they have god's word right next to them okay but not only is uh uh is the book the bible itself but also the bible is the ultimate book the bible is the book of all books and, uh, and what I mean by that is that, quite literally, the Bible is the supreme book, which from basically all other books come from. And actually, just a few months ago, some of you probably saw this, there was a, uh, an interview, uh, Joe Rogan interviewed the Canadian psychologist uh, Jordan Peterson, who's, I don't know if he's a Christian, but he's fascinated with the Bible. And uh, Jordan Peterson had just visited the Bible Museum in, in Washington, D.C., and he realized all these things about the role that the Bible had played in in history and in, in the formation of our civilization, and he realized that the Bible is literally like the first book. I mean, there, there were, you know, scrolls and libraries and papyrus before the Bible, but literally Christians invented the Codex, which the Codex is the precursor of what we know as a book now, because they were having to take all these different texts and put them together, and so it was a new kind of uh, technology. And, uh, and so the book basically came from Christians making Bibles. And what Peterson says is that the, The whole way a civilization functions, it is that it's built on a certain framework of shared ideas and words that come from written texts. I'm going to read to you just a little excerpt from that interview. This is what he says. But all those books, in some sense, emerged from that underlying book. And that book itself, the Bible, isn't a book, it's a library, it's a collection of books. And some words are dependent on other words. Some ideas are dependent on other ideas. More, the more ideas that are give, uh, dependent on a given idea, the more fundamental is that idea. So now imagine you have an aggregation of texts in a civilization, and you say, which are the fundamental texts? And the answer is, the text on which most other texts depend So you think of all the books in our society. What book do they all depend on? And so you would put Shakespeare in there uh, in English because so many texts are dependent on Shakespeare's literary revelations and Milton would be in that category and Dante would be in that category. Fundamental authors, they are part of the Western canon not because of the arbitrary dictates of power but because those texts influence more other texts. And then you think about that as a hierarchy with the Bible at its base which is certainly the case. So it isn't that the Bible is true. It is that uh, the Bible is the precondition for the manifestation of truth, which makes it way more true than just true. It is a whole different kind of true. I think this is, the only, uh, this is not only literally the case factually, it can't be any other way. It is the only way we can solve the problem of perception. That might be a, a meaty paragraph for you, but basically what he's saying is Jesus rules the world with his book. Jesus has built the world with his book. The, book. the world has been founded on his book, and he has made all other knowledge possible because of his book. And so it's not just that the book of Revelation in, Re, in Revelation 4 is the Bible, but the Bible is the book that upholds all other books and makes them possible. And what he's saying is that is literally and historically true. Uh, and it all started when the Lamb of God was enthroned, and he alone could open the scroll. And I should say, you know, I, I, another book I've been reading recently is a novel called The, the Name of the Rose, which is uh, by Umberto Eco. It's, about, it's a, a, a story about a 14th century monastery. And And one of the things that's so great about this novel is it tells you all the details of what life in a medieval monastery was like. And besides the kind of chapel where the monks would, the brothers would come together to worship, the, the most important place in the monastery was the library and the scriptorium. And in, in there, you would have all these monks that are lined up in their, uh, at their desks. And what are they doing? They're writing out books. Book production was a huge part of the building of Christian civilization. Uh, and that is how good kings rule. They teach their people to live ordered and godly lives. And then the king himself lives an orderly and godly godly life under the book so that everyone can be free. Other kings dominate people and rule them with the power of the sword. But Jesus' sword by which he rules is the written word. He rules people by educating them, by teaching them the truth incredible, beautiful picture that we have of God's kingdom and the true king of heaven and earth here. So, the first thing we learn about the ascension of Jesus is that he rules the word, the world, uh, through his book. And that's why we are people who are devoted to that book. We love that book. We study that book. We talk about that book. Okay. So, the second thing we learn in this passage is uh, that Jesus alone can open the book. Jesus alone can open the book. And uh, and this passage is so powerful in tapping into the deep sense of longing that we all experience. I mean, who's, who's not moved by these words in, in verse 2? And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll Or to look into it. And these verses are so rhetorically powerful. Uh, They make you want to know, what does it say in the scroll? (laughs) Why can't anyone open it? What's in there? And, uh, you know, it reminds me of a talk that uh, I I saw several years ago by uh, J.J. Abrams. J.J. Abrams uh, is a director. He did some of the Mission Impossible movies. And um, and he he first became famous uh, because he directed the show in the 2000s called Lost. And, uh, and in, uh, in his uh, talk, he was, he was uh, describing his philosophy of writing, you know, telling stories and writing TV shows. And he had, during his talk, on the stage this black box. And he said, the main thing that you're trying to do in a story is to get everyone wondering what's in the black box. And uh, if, you, if you watch the, the show Lost, he was very good at making you wonder, what is this monster? The monster was the black box. And you're trying to, you're always wondering. And then season after season goes by and you think, I don't think J.J. Abrams knows what's in the box. <laughs> he but he sure knows how to make us wonder what's in the box with him too. Um, life itself is a black box. There is a deep longing for us to find the meaning of life and we wonder who is worthy to open the scroll to unlock that meaning for us, and uh, it's so common for us to think that we have found people who can open the scroll for us. You know, we meet a pastor, we meet a counselor, or a teacher, or a friend, or an author, or even a political leader, and we think, finally, they have the answer. They've unlocked. They've. Um, I see it now. I finally have uh, the answer, and. Uh, and whenever someone says that to us, you know, when you meet someone and they're like, I figured out the truth for my whole life. I, I, it was this one thing that I just needed to figure out. And you're thinking, oh, I have a feeling this isn't it. And you have a feeling in a couple months we're going to realize this wasn't the full answer. It didn't unlock the scroll uh, for you. And I, I remember actually as a teenager I had a friend named Eddie who was, um, he was really difficult guy that a lot of people had trouble with. And then he finally was interested in Christianity, and it was amazing, the transformation that was happening in him. He, he was humble, and people were like, I actually like you. And it was, you know, the, Christ was at work in him. But then his, his mother gave him this book. It was called Conversations with God. It was definitely not a Christian book. And it was about some guy who said he had conversations with God, and he wrote down exactly what God told him. And, and Eddie thought, this book is finally the truth. And all of a sudden, he was just destroying all the relationships around him. And you're like, that wasn't the truth. That author was not worthy to open the scroll. (laughs) He didn't open the scroll. And it doesn't just happen in religion. It can happen in psychology that we think, I finally have an insight about my childhood that explains everything about my life. And we think the scroll has finally been opened and my deepest longings will be satisfied. And often we find that it fails. And what this passage is saying is no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth is able to open the scroll and to look into it except for one. There's only one who is worthy. You see in verse six, in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. And this is one of the great scenes in the Bible. You know, there's this, this angel that gives this announcement Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah! And everyone turns to go look at the, the lion. And what's the lion? A lamb. And uh, when the lion appears, he's a lamb, the powerful one who became a weak one, the powerful one who became a slain one, the powerful one who became a humble one. That reality, this passage is saying, that the powerful one became a lamb is the center of the universe, is the center of existence, and is the center of human history. Who can open the book of truth? Who can unlock what life and history is really about? The lion who became the lamb is the only one. And you might say, well, you know, why is Jesus different than, you know, other pastors or counselors? You might say, you know, I've met people who you know, met Jesus and they became fanatical and annoying and they ruined all the relationships around them and it didn't really seem good for them. Well, why does this passage say that Jesus alone is worthy? Well, it tells us there in verse 9, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you uh, ransom people for God. The only reason Jesus is worthy to open the scroll is because he was willing to go to the cross. And I think we see that in small form in, you know, the people that we trust in our lives. Who are the people that we kind of let unlock our hearts and minds? You know, who we're vulnerable with, who we share our secrets with. People who are patient. People who are humble. People that will sacrifice for us. People that we know are loyal and will give of themselves for us. We say, you're the one that I'll trust. And so you take that little experience and you magnify it to a cosmic level and say, Who alone is worthy not just to unlock one person's kind of secrets of their hearts, but the secrets of existence itself is the one who patiently came and shed his blood for unworthy sinners to welcome them into his kingdom. He is the only one who is worthy, Jesus. And I'll tell you why this is good news. The new age has begun. Heaven has changed, and a human, the man Jesus Christ, sits on the throne, and he has been given all authority in heaven and earth, and despite all the things happening in this world, he rules it with his word. He rules with his book, and as long as we stay close to that book, we will stay close to him. He alone can unlock the book. He alone can look into the black box of life. He alone can answer the deepest longings of our soul. And he is worthy because he was the high king who became the lowly slain lamb. And because of that, we will every week come and say, Lord, I believe that you have ascended into heaven. I believe you are seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and that you alone are worthy to come and judge the living and the dead. We put our trust in him. We give our devotion to him because he is good. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we uh, thank you for this uh, amazing uh, passage of scripture. And uh, we pray that you uh, would give us the understanding that we are living in that new age. And that so often uh, we see uh, the, the suffering and the violence, the sins in ourselves and in the world. Help us have faith to know that Jesus is indeed on the throne and his purposes are going forward. And make us people who love his book. And may you unlock it for us that we might see him in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.